story that we're going to be talking about takes us back to about 1889, in the early 1900s. Um, and it takes us all the way to India this time, uh, to northern India. Um, the person we're going to be speaking about today is someone that I, I think most people may never have heard of before. His name was Sundar Singh. And um, so we're going to talk about his early life today. Okay, so Sundar Singh was born in 1889. He was uh, born in northern India. And he was uh, born into a Sikh family. Now, Sikh, S-I-K-H, is, um, is a branch of Hinduism. So India at this time was predominantly Hindu, as it is today. Um, but up in the north of India, there were these, this religion called the Sikhs. And you might have seen people um, uh, from uh, India wearing these turbans. And the Sikhs had uh, a couple of big rituals as part of their faith. One was that they, the men grew their hair and never, ever cut it. So from birth, their hair would grow, and they would sort of knot it up and put it into a turban. And this was really important as part of their religion because they wanted to look different, and they were, they were separate. Sort of they, they were very proud to be different. Um, the other thing about the Sikhs, was they had a lot of rituals to do with cleanliness and hygiene and they were very particular about their food. And all of these external rituals were things that they were very, very stringent about and very, very, um, I guess, it, it was a, a very proud tradition. So Sundar Singh was brought up as a Sikh. He was actually uh, from a very, very wealthy family and uh, his father was a prominent landowner in the community. He was not living in the city, he was sort of living in a country area. And um, his, his father was devout, however, he was more a proud Sikh. His mother, on the other hand, was very, very devout. In fact, she really dedicated her life to this seeking of peace and calmness, which was seen as central to the Sikh faith, being able to... Um, find a place of complete calm and rest was kind of your life's journey. That's, that's what you needed to be able to do. So Sundar Singh was brought up in, in, this, in this home. And he was the younger of the family, so he, he had older brothers. And um, as he grew up, his mother, and this was a very young age, his mother really cared and loved him because she saw something very different in her youngest son. And she really wanted to pass on her devotion and desire uh, to seek this inner peace that she talked about. She wanted to pass that over to Sunda. And so from a very young age, uh, she would insist that he rise before dawn with, with her. So this is when he was like four years old. Um, and that he would bathe in the ritual way and that he would spend time with her reading through the Hindu texts and the Sikh texts and so on, and he would recite and memorise and chant. And he learnt to do this from a very, very young age. And she would insist that he do it. And at first he used to complain because he wanted his breakfast. But soon this became second nature to him. And he really admired his mother, and he did, in some way, uh, perhaps beyond his years, internalise this desire, this quest for true inner peace. And he learned all the different types of meditation and so on in order to find it. Now, at the age of seven, he could already recite huge passages of the Hindu texts. 
and he was um, he was quite incredible. And so his mother used to take him to the sadhus. Now the sadhus were holy men in India. Now they were often Hindu, but they could be other religions as well. And the sadhus were interesting people. They 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 wore sort of an orange coloured or yellow coloured robe to signal that they were holy. And they they had no home, so they renounced everything to do with modern life. And they were on a quest uh, to seek some sort of uh, peace or um, something along those lines. So often they were on pilgrimages. They had no family. They sort of they they didn't have a home. They had no possessions, and they were totally reliant on the communities that they went through to provide them with food and 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 so on. So these sadhus, these holy men, were. I guess uh, very much revered in India, and they still are to some extent today. You can, in certain parts of India, you'll see these people as well, and they often did crazy things like, you know, meditated for days in the jungle, or went in strange positions, you know, on cliff tops and so on, and stayed completely still for many hours and so on. The, these people were doing all, all extraordinary things to try and attain some sort of level of holiness and peace. But um, as part of the Sikh religion, they, uh, his mother taught Sunda to really respect these holy men. And one day, she brought him before a holy man in the middle of the jungle somewhere. And this, this sadhu sort of asked him a few questions from the Hindu text, and Sunda responded really quickly and with the recited answers. And he was very, very impressed with this little seven-year-old. And he said to, this, he said to the mother, one day, perhaps even this boy will become a sadhu like me. And um, his mother was so overjoyed by this. Because the idea that her youngest son would become a holy man, she felt that that would actually mean that he might really attain this peace that she had, I guess, still, she was still searching for. So as Sunda was growing up, this was his life. He was... Um, his mother ensured that he, he had sort of a tutor, like a teacher, uh, from one of the best Hindu uh, sort of uh, Hindu teachers of the time. He also had a Sikh teacher as well, and he he was really trained from a young age to to understand that life was about karma, which is the idea that if you do good, good happens to you, and the idea of creating uh, goodness around you in order to protect the rest of your life and your community. He understood that he must never do anything wrong and he must be kind to everybody, including and especially these sadhus, these holy men. And he really did believe this and earnestly want to seek this peace that his mother really instilled in him. Now his father, on the other hand, was uh, a lot more interested in a good secular education. He was concerned about the fact that his youngest son was spending a, long, a lot of time indoors, you know, poring over these texts. And he felt that was a little unusual for a 10-year-old, a 9-, 10-year-old. And he thought to himself that he should be out there playing with all the other boys and his older brothers. And this was, this was not healthy for him. And so he decided to enrol Sunda into a mission school, a missionary school pretty much, run by some American missionaries. Now, in India at this time, Christians were the lowest of the lowest class. They were nicknamed the sweepers because that's what their jobs were, pretty much street sweeping or cleaning public toilets. And in India, that's not a nice task. 
So these were kind of the jobs of Christians. And the reason for that was because they were seen as dirty outcasts and they, they really couldn't rise up the ranks like anybody else. So really they were kept poor. So Christians were, were really despised. They were tolerated because at that time uh, India was a British colony. They were tolerated, but they certainly were sort of despised and sort of had to live on the outskirts of town. However, there were these missionaries from the Western countries, England, America, and they came over and they did things like set up schools. Now, the Sikhs and the Hindus thought, good, we can take advantage of the Christians. They're giving us good American education. We'll send our kids there, tell them to block their ears when they hear stuff about their holy book, the Bible. But essentially, they felt that it was fine to send your kids there as long as you know, there, there was no conversion happening or anything like that. And so Sunda was soon enrolled into this American uh, mission school, I guess, in, in the town um, that he lived. And uh, he, when Sunda was enrolled, this was sort of primary school. He was still around 10 years old. At this point, he really resented it because he really admired his mother and saw the devotion of his mother. And the idea that he would be enrolled in a Christian mission school was just, he just felt it was really wrong. And he really hated, as part of some of their lessons, they had to hear the Bible being read. He really hated it. And it was almost an inexplicable hatred. And he started to cause a lot of disruption at school. So he would interrupt the teacher. He would ask questions, um, annoying questions. He would make comments to the teacher. He, and then he even started to be a bit of a ringleader with a couple of the other boys. And together they would go out... Um, after school hours, they would go to the marketplaces where many of these missionaries and um, so on would uh, preach in the marketplaces. And they would run and they would throw stones at these missionaries until the missionaries were sort of running for cover and then they would disappear into the crowd. And he used to do this quite um, uh, like regularly. And so he had this real hatred for the Bible, hearing the Bible, uh, and all these, these missionaries and all their teaching and so on. But at the same time, he really strongly desired to find his peace. And for some reason, he didn't understand the contradiction of what he was doing. He was, he was doing all sorts of different styles of yoga. He was meditating, and he was really trying to really find answers in the Hindu texts. Now, the more he studied, the more doubts he had, and he... Things didn't sort of, they weren't, they weren't matching up in his head. Now, by the time he was about 14 years old, suddenly his life took a dramatic turn. At 14, his mother suddenly died. And this was shocking for Sunda because he was so close to his mother and he, he really admired her. Now, if there was anyone who was devoted who spent their life meticulously following every ritual, who, I guess, by the rules of karma, should have had the most wonderful life. It should have been his mother. But unfortunately, she had passed away, and very, very quickly and suddenly, without any warning. And Sunda was so grief-stricken, but he wasn't just grief-stricken, he was angry. He thought, what's gone wrong? Then to make matters worse, a couple of months later, before he'd even gotten over the grief of losing his mother, his older brother died suddenly as well. And he was close to this older brother, so it was two very, very important, very close family members 
within the space of two months, he'd lost. And he was very angry. And he thought, this is wrong. What, what's happening here? All his family told him that he must bow to his fate. They said things like, the wheel of life is turning and your brother and your mother, they will come in a new form. Their soul will be reborn and because they were good people. And all of these words, he, he said, well, I'll never know them. And I'll never know that that is the case, that that has happened. And suddenly, all of his ideas and thoughts and things that he had really built his life upon and the quest that he felt was so clear before him, the idea of seeking this inner peace, was just, I guess, cracks were coming in and it was all breaking apart in front of him. Now, he, was, he became quite an angry young man. He was 14 at this point. And um, I guess the outlet for him became the, the missionary school that he was at. And he became quite difficult. He was a very, very difficult student. He hated it. He hated hearing the Bible, and he didn't understand. He, he didn't understand why, but he really hated it. And he hated hearing anything about their holy person called Jesus. To him, it was a foreign god. It didn't belong in India. And so he became, <coughs> sorry, he became very angry towards the missionaries. And it came to a point where one day he borrowed um, the New Testament off one of his teachers and he got his friends together and he went back to his house and he tore it up page by page and then he put it in a pile and he set fire to it and he said, that's what I think of the Christian book and the Christians. Now his father came out and saw what Sunda had done and was actually very, very angry with Sunda because in India it's a very superstitious sort of culture and the idea that Sunda had burnt a holy book, even though it was a Christian holy book, the idea that he'd done that, that would be very, very bad karma. Very bad karma for, uh, for the family. And so he was very, very angry with Sunda that he should have done this thing. And again, Sunda, he internalised this anger and his frustration, his confusion. And it came to a point, only about three days later, that... He, was, he woke up at about 3 a.m. and he decided on very, very drastic action. His father's property bordered the railway and there was uh, an express train called the Ludhiana Express. Now, this went to Ludhiana, which was the biggest city near where Sunda lived. And it cut through his father's property at 5 a.m. every morning. And Sunda, when he woke up at three, he said to himself, either God, if there even is a God or a supreme being, reveals himself to me now, or I will throw myself in front of that train at 5 a.m. And so he decided to do this because he thought to himself, if I don't know for sure, I'm not dedicating my life to finding this inner peace. And I might as well just hop on that wheel of life that's turning and join my mother and my brothers and be sort of uh, reincarnated into, into some other life form. So that was his decision. So at 3 a.m. he bathed in the very ritual way that he'd been taught and he came back to his room, he dressed and he knelt, knelt on the ground and he bowed his head to the ground 
and he started to pray. And he said, God, if there is a God, if there is a supreme being, if there are many gods, you must reveal yourself to me or I will throw myself in front of the train at 5 a.m. And so he prayed. And he thought to himself, he wondered if he would see a vision. He thought he would see Krishna, the Hindu god. But then he thought, maybe it's not the Hindu god, maybe it's Buddha. Maybe it's the, the god of the... The, the Himalayas, you know, the, the Tibet and those countries. Maybe it's Buddha. Maybe it's... Then he thought about all the different gurus, the great gurus of the Sikh religion, and he thought he might hear that. He thought he would fall into a trance or perhaps he would hear voices chanting from the ancient texts. But he heard nothing, and it was already 4 a.m. Now, as he sat there in the silence, still kneeling on the ground, he suddenly realized that the room was full of light. And at first he thought that there was something on fire and he was reflecting into his room and he actually went outside and he went out into the courtyard to look and it was all dark outside. So he came back into the room and it was still full of light and he, he didn't know what was happening. And suddenly a figure appeared before him and straight away he knew that it was the Lord Jesus Christ. And he heard Jesus speak to him and said, and Jesus said, why are you persecuting me? I died on the cross for you. My life was given for yours. And Sunda fell on his face. He was so overwhelmed and shocked. This was not what he was expecting. He, Jesus was a foreign god. He, it, he was the holy man of foreigners, not for India. And so it was very, very confusing for Sunda what he saw. But he fell on the, his face and he said that you know, the, the face of the Lord was full of compassion and love, not judgment, not condemnation that he was expecting. And there he lay on the floor till dawn. And the Ludhiana Express had already roared past and he had not even heard it. Now when Sunda got up from the floor, from, from his bedroom, the first thing he did was he ran straight to his father and he flung open the door of his father's room and he said, my father, father, wake up. I've seen Jesus Christ. He was in my room and I've now, I'm now become a Christian. And of course his father sat bolt upright in bed and he said, you stupid boy. Three days ago you burnt their holy book. Go back to bed. And so, so that, was, that was the end of the matter, according to his father. But it was quite a shock for the father to hear that his, his youngest son, one of his favoured children, had suddenly become a Christian. He thought it was just a passing fad. But that next day, Sunda went around to all his family members and one by one told them about the vision, told them that Jesus had come into his room, that, that it's not the gurus, it's not Krishna, it's Jesus. Jesus is the one. He's the true God. It's not all these other gods. It's, it's Jesus. And the family just thought he'd gone mad. They thought he'd come over with some fit of insanity. And they, they started worrying about him. But Sunda was not to be deterred. He knew for a fact. He had prayed that the one and true God would reveal himself and then he'd seen Jesus. He knew that this was the one true God. But you know what? That is all he knew. He didn't know anything. It wasn't like he was paying attention at school and heard about the Bible. He really didn't know anything. 
And so he didn't know what it was to be a Christian. He was wondering about their rituals. What do they do? What do they eat? He, he didn't know. And so he thought to himself, oh, I need to talk to someone. And so he talked to a friend who was the, at, at the mission school who happened to be the son of the headmaster. And this boy was a little bit shocked at, at Sunda's story, but said, well, go and speak to my dad, the headmaster. And so Sunda asked to appear before the headmaster, and he, he went, and, and the headmaster thought, oh, here we go again. But Sunda explained and said, I'm now a Christian. And the headmaster just was very shocked. And Sunda said, what do I do? I'm a Christian now. What do I do? Can you teach me? Now, the headmaster was in a little bit of a quandary here because on the one hand, he was a Christian and he genuinely believed that something miraculous had happened to Sunda Singh's life. But on the other hand, he knew that if he had any involvement in converting Sunda Singh or was seen to be involved in in making him a Christian, that his head would be on the line. He would probably be uh, thrown out, the school would be shut down, he would be uh, perhaps even killed by some prominent Sikh in the community. It was dangerous. And so he didn't, he didn't know what to do. But on the other hand, he did. Because he was a Christian man. And he knew that he had to help this boy. And so he agreed to meet with Sunda. Um, in secret after school and together they would read the New Testament. So Sunda came uh, every afternoon and together they went through the Gospels and Sunda was meeting Jesus Christ for the second time, really. But he was so shocked at this man, this man that was the holy man of the Christian people. But he was so meek. He was full of compassion. He healed the sick and his life was a life of suffering. And he lived and then through his life he suffered until it came to the point where he suffered on the cross and he didn't do it for himself. He did it for all people including Sunda. Sunda who had been so hateful towards the Christians and burnt their book in such disgust This man, Jesus, had died for him. And so he was so, so impressed by this man. And particularly the verse that says, For whoever would save his life will lose it, but for whoever loses his life for my sake in the Gospels will find it. that, That little verse kind of stuck with him. Now, his family could see that this Christian thing was not a passing fad at all. Um, In fact, Sunda was uh, uh, behaving very differently, and they were getting more and more concerned. They were very, very upset about what had happened. Now, the Sikhs, you know, there's a rule, and particularly in these early days, if you were a Sikh, you were forever a Sikh. There was no converting. Conversion to another religion. I mean, Hinduism and Sikhism, this is very similar for both. To converting to another religion, particularly something as low as Christianity, was seen as great treachery. Treachery to your culture, identity to your family. And this idea that this young boy had somehow just 
overnight become a Christian was outrageous. His older brother started treating him very, very badly. And his father, and perhaps this was harder, entreated him with tears and said, please forget this. You know, come back. What are you doing? Why why are you are you becoming a Christian? Why are you not thinking in the, in the right way? And he begged and pleaded and cried and and this was a lot of pressure for Sunda. Now his extended family was also very concerned. Uh, his uncle one day invited Sunda to come to his home. And this was the older brother of the of his father. And this man came to Sundar and, and brought him down to the cellar of his house. And he unlocked a safe down in the cellar. And he showed Sundar the money, the jewels that the family had. And this uncle said, I will give everything to you if you can just forget this Christian thing and come back to your family, to the age-old traditions. We are proud Sikhs. That's what we are. You are not a Christian, it's not you. And then to make to make it even more difficult, down in the cellar, this uncle got on his knees and took off his turban. This was the act of the humblest act of supplication a Sikh could do. He took his turban off and laid it at Sunda's feet, and he said, "Please, please, do it for your family. Come back to us." And Sunda, with tears. Said he could not, and said that he had he now knew the one true God, and he would not turn his back on the Lord Jesus Christ. And he had also just read the verse that says, Whoever loves father and mother more than me is not worthy of me. And that verse really stuck with him because it was very, very difficult for him. He was under a lot of pressure for a 14-year-old boy. Now, of course, um, there there was actually another boy, another friend. Um, His name was Sirdar. And this boy had also become a Christian. And Sirdar had become a Christian through hearing the teachers read passages of the Bible. And Sirdar and Sunda were both from prominent Sikh families. And um, when the news got out in the community that Sunda had become a Christian, and not only Sunda but Sirda, uh, things were getting a little bit tense. And Sirda was actually from a very, very prominent family, and his father took the headmaster and all the school officials to court and said, you've done something illegal, my son has become a Christian because of you, um, so we, we're taking you to court. And the case went through, but it was dropped at the last minute because Sirda and Sunda, when they went and gave their witness statement, both of them said, it's not these men. It was nothing to do with these men. Sirda said, it's not them, it's the book. Not the words of those people, it's the words of this book. And Sunda also explained it was nothing to do with these people. And so the case had to be dropped, but it was not dropped in the minds of the community. And in fact, in that small community, the Christians, the lowest, the poorest of the poor, started to be persecuted really quite severely. So the Christians were being persecuted because of Sunda. 
Not only that, but the school in a few weeks closed down because a lot of the people in the community, even the big Hindu families and so on, they removed their kids. The headmaster was under a lot of pressure. He had to leave. All the teachers had to get out. So the school had closed. All the Christians were being persecuted. And again, there was a lot of pressure on Sunda. All of this because of what he'd done. Now, his father at this point thought that the best thing for him to do would be to get Sunda out of here. And so, again, thinking about his education, he enrolled him in a school quite a distance away at another um, city um, in, near Lundiana. And he enrolled him there in, in a boarding school. And again, all these schools were generally run by missionaries, Western missionaries, English or American missionaries. So he was again at this mission school. But his father thought, remove him from the situation and maybe he'll calm down. And Serta was going to be sent to the same school as well. Now, the, on the one hand, you know, Sunda and Serta were so overjoyed about this because they were going to be sent to another mission school. They were now Christians. They thought, we're going to, we're going to be able to, to meet other boys who are Christians. We're going to have our own time. We, we're not going to have the pressure of our family. And yet they were also scared because they, they were leaving their whole village and everything they knew. But Sunda was relieved. He had been under so much pressure. And so when he went there, he was excited to meet the other teachers, to meet the, the boys, and he thought he could share his story. They would teach him from the scripture. They could pray together and, and teach him how to pray. And he was, he was very excited about all the things he would learn here. But after a week, he was shocked. Never before had he thought that it was possible, but he suddenly realised that it was. There were people who were Christian in name only. They, they didn't care about the Bible. They said they were Christians, but when he talked with them, they thought he was weird. They wondered why he wanted to read the Bible so much. They, they questioned why he wanted to pray. It was a bit silly. And his story, well, that seemed a bit far-fetched. They laughed. All of these boys who were Christians, they were Christian in name only. And Sunda was shocked. He didn't ever think there could be such a thing. And he really didn't like it at this school. There was so much nominalism that um, he, he didn't even fit in to a Christian school. And after term, the term had finished, he went back for the term break and he said to his family that he didn't want to return. And his family took that as, we're making ground here. You know, He's starting to get rid of this Christian thing and he's starting to forget it. And they were overjoyed and they welcomed him and they said, wonderful, wonderful. No, of course you're not going back there. Of course that's fine. And they were, they were very, very happy. But then they saw that he was still reading that little New Testament he was still praying, but not in the right way. He refused to go to the Hindu temples with them. He refused to, to join in the Sikh rituals and, and all of these different things. And again, they were very angry. And they thought, you know, what is this boy? Why is he holding on to this Christian faith? And again, they started to persecute him. One of the first things they did was they started to exclude him from family meals. 
you see in the Sikh tradition, you know, the extended family comes together for a meal. They have a huge platter. Everyone dips their bread into the same sort of uh, sauces and spices. And that was the idea of we are family, we are one. However, they couldn't do that with Sundar. He was an outcast. He was told to eat in another room. His dishes couldn't be shared with the family because they believed that he would defile those dishes. So he had to have his own set of cups and dishes. They wouldn't even touch them because he was an outcast. And this was very, very difficult for Sunda. Now, one of his rich relatives decided that they would do something very extreme and that they would get a private audience with the Maharaj. Now, the Maharaj was, I guess, like the, you know, like the Archbishop of Canterbury, you know, somebody really high up, a ruler, somebody who was um, very, very, very well respected. And to get a private audience with this man was quite something. And this rich relative managed to get a private audience with the Maharaj and brought Sunda and uh, brought him in and said, and the Maharaj understood the situation and started explaining to Sunda the richness of their Sikh tradition, the ancient cultures, the identity, the, the pride with which one could call yourself a Singh. Now, Singh, that S-I-N-G-H, is a very common last name for a Sikh, and it actually means lion. And that last name, many, many Sikh people have that last name, very, very common last name. And he was Sunda Singh, so he was a, he, his name even told everyone that he was a Sikh. And this Maharaj explained, you know, the significance of that name. You know, you are, this is what you are, you are a lion. And at the end of the interview, um, he asked Sunda what his thoughts were now. And Sunda said, I can't, I can't change. I know the truth. I have seen the Lord Jesus Christ and it is him that I will follow. And this Maharaj was so contemptuous towards him and towards the relative and said, get out, you're no lion anymore, you're nothing but a jackal. And so Sunda was dismissed from the company and that relative and it was a, such a great disgrace, the relative was so sh ashamed about what happened and was so angry with Sunda that even in front of this important holy person, somebody who you must have great reverence for. He, he, he didn't even respect the ancient tradition of his family. And again, Sunda felt under a huge amount of pressure. Now, he was almost coming up to his... He was, he was now 15, and he was coming up to the time where the Sikhs had this initiation ceremony. And this was an initiation ceremony from boyhood to manhood because uh, 16 was the age where uh, you became an adult. And so this was a very big deal. This ceremony meant that you were going to be, you were now classed as a Sikh man. And Sunda knew that he would not be going through with this ceremony, that he wouldn't be a Sikh man. He was a Christian. And he wanted to make it very clear because his family kept thinking that this fad of Christianity would just pass, it would fade away. And he wanted to make it very, very clear to them that it wouldn't and that his life was dedicated to the true God. And that was the Lord Jesus Christ. And so he did something very, very simple but very meaningful. 
he got a pair of scissors and he chopped off his hair. Now to us that seems nothing, but to a Sikh that was hugely symbolic. You did not ever cut your hair if you were a Sikh man. You never cut it. In fact, cutting it was a symbol of cutting yourself off from your family, your community, and all your forefathers, all that tradition. And so when Sunda's father saw what he had done, that he'd cut off all his hair, he was, the horror on his father's face was nothing that Sunda had ever seen before. And that horror soon turned into great anger. And he said, you've done this? You've cut yourself off? Well, so be it. Get out. And from that moment, Sunda knew that he was out. And literally, his father threw him out of the house with the clothes he was wearing, and he had the New Testament in his hand. And he knew that from that point on, he would never, ever be welcomed back at home. He literally had cut himself off from his family, his community, and all the friends that he'd grown up with. And so there he was, cast out on the street. He had nothing. And the door was closed. His father had disowned him completely. He was never to return. And so he didn't know what to do. But he sat under a tree opposite the house. And it was already coming to sunset. And he knew that you know, he didn't have long before nightfall. And so he just sat under this tree. And surprisingly, you know, he, he was full of peace despite his situation. That peace that his mother had sought for and so on, that peace that surpasses understanding filled his heart at that point. And he just had such great joy, sat under the tree. He knew he couldn't go anywhere. He knew that he couldn't go to any of his friends. They were Sikhs. They would see what he'd done. They wouldn't welcome him. All the houses of the Christians, all the poor Christians who'd been persecuted because of him, their doors would be shut too. He couldn't go anywhere, so he just stayed under the tree for the whole night. But he'd been reading Acts of the Apostles. So despite all of this suffering that he'd experienced and the pressure that was on him, he had great joy because he understood what it meant to be counted worthy to suffer for the name of Jesus. Now, when morning came, he realised the practicality of the situation. He couldn't stay under a tree forever. And he thought to himself, the only option, really, he couldn't really stay in, the, in this village. The only option would be to walk to the nearest city. Now, that was 50 kilometres away. Rapport was the, the nearest city. Londiana was too far so he thought that he would go there, and he knew that there were some people from that boarding school that he was at. There was a reverend there, he lived there, there was a few other people who lived in that particular town. And so he thought that he would um, walk that way, and he didn't know what he would do because he had no food, he had no money, he had nothing except the clothes on his back and his, his pocket New Testament. But just as the morning came, he saw his sister-in-law come out of the house, and she was carrying some food on a tray. <clears throat> and she, she didn't 
look at him, but she sort of beckoned, knowing that he was just sat there, beckoned that this food was for him. And she put it on this special veranda that the family had, which was where they placed food for beggars or outcasts. Food that, you know, so that these people wouldn't need to come into their property of any, any way. And so there he placed, she placed this food and indicated it was for him. Now, he was grateful, but it was a very humiliating experience. The idea that he, the son of the father of this, this home, a home that he'd grown up in, now he was taking food like a beggar from this platform where only the outcasts and beggars would take food. It was humiliating for him, but he knew he needed the, he needed the food for the journey. So he took the food and he started his long 50-kilometre walk to Rapur. Now in India they used to walk him, so he could walk quite a distance. And he walked for all that way and he ate the food along the way. And when he arrived, he came to the reverend's home and he explained the situation to this man. And this man, this reverend, was actually a Hindu prior to becoming a Christian and he too had experienced this difficulty. He had, um, he had been uh, thrown out of his father's home in a similar way, so he understood the situation and he understood culturally what was going on. So he took Sunda in and just as he took Sunda into his home, Sunda just bent double and he suddenly had these violent spasms of pain and he just started vomiting and the reverend immediately knew what was wrong. And suddenly blood was actually pouring out of Sunda's nose, his mouth, and the reverend called the doctor, but the reverend understood. And he said to Sunda, did you eat anything on the way? And Sunda said, yes, I only had one meal. They left it for me at the house. And the reverend said, they poisoned you. Now this was a common occurrence in India. It's something called honour killing where it was such a disgrace for a family member to have someone who'd converted to Christianity, they'd rather that person die. And so Sunda had been poisoned. And the doctor came and he saw the situation and he was used to seeing these types of events and he said, that amount of poison, he'll be dead before morning and I don't want to waste my time, I don't want to waste my medicine. And he said, I don't want to get involved. If, if I get involved, I might be blamed for the death. And the doctor didn't want to do anything. And Sunda heard what had happened and he realised that, you know, the, the extent of the blood loss and the extent of pain he had, he thought he may not last till morning. And so he begged the reverend, he said, please, can you just read the last chapter of the Gospel of Mark? And so, of course, the reverend obliged. And the doctor, because he was sort of caught in that moment, sort of had to stay and he stood there respectfully. He wanted to leave, but he stayed. And the last chapter of the Gospel of Mark was read. And then, of course, the doctor left and he said to the reverend, I'll call in the morning, but probably just to pronounce him dead. And he left. Now, during the night, Sunda was in a, a lot of pain and he prayed. And just in that last part of Mark, he, he had read that last bit that talks about, you know, that he, and he was sent out, he heard about the power of healing, and that the disciples, all these, they, they went out and all these signs accompanied them. And he thought to himself, he said, Lord Jesus, do you want me to die now or do you have other work for me to do? 
And if so, please, can you heal me? And that was his simple prayer. Now, in the morning, the doctor returned, and the doctor came back and uh, was actually started because Sunda was sat on the veranda. He was very weak, but he was alive. And the doctor was so shocked, his eyes went to that New Testament, and he was a little bit scared of it. This was a holy book, and that was read, and now Sunda's better. So he, he was quiet. He looked at that, that little New Testament with a lot of respect, and he kindly, he sort of asked uh, uh, almost sheepishly if the reverend had a spare copy of that same text. It was almost like a superstition thing. And so the doctor took that New Testament home and he sort of kept it with great respect. However, he also did read it. And Sunda didn't realise this, but that incident totally changed that doctor's life. And he also became a Christian. Now, once Sunda had recovered, this reverend didn't know what to do because here was a boy who uh, his family had made an attempt on his life. Now, if the family found out that he was alive still, because they would have assumed that he died along the way, then if the family found out, then there would be another attempt because the idea that he should be a Christian and be part of the family, this was disgraceful, there would be another attempt. So they thought, you know, this reverend contacted other missionaries and said, what do we do with this boy? Where can we send him? So they decided to send him to the boarding school and they thought that at least if he's at this boarding school, he'll be protected. And he's already 15. He's almost 16. So 16 was kind of like the age of an adult. Um, when he was 16, he can decide what to do. But for now, we, we are under uh, ownership, guardianship, really. We need to protect this boy. And so again, he was sent to this boarding school. And again, he was not happy there. It was a very strict and regimented boarding school. And, and he had very little free time. Um, and he had very little companionship with the other boys as well. While he was there, he actually got news that Serda, his friend, had been poisoned and had died. And this was a reality for those who'd converted to Christianity. But here at the school, you know, he, he was there only for a, a week or so when his father came. His father had found out that he was there. And his father came and they couldn't prevent his father from coming into the school. And, and so his father came and, and saw Sunda and spoke with him there. And he said... You know, he said to Sunda, please, I'm entreating you just this once more. I will forgive what you have done if you will come back. Come back to your family home. I'm giving you this opportunity. This is more than any other father would give. But you are my favoured son. And I beg you, please, come back to us. Come back to your home. Come back to your tradition, your family, your true identity. And with tears, his father entreated him yet again. And Sunda found this very difficult. He was not happy at this boarding school. It was a difficult life. He didn't have close friends here. He didn't have any ties to this place. And he did long for home. But then he remembered his vision of the Lord Jesus Christ. And he knew that he could never turn his back. And so he said to his father, I can't, I can't, father, I can't, because I now love Christ. 
and his father's tears turned into anger in a split second and he said, you are no son of mine and this is the last time and do you know what? You will not see the end of this. And his father left. Now, it was only the next day that relatives came to the school. They were trying to get their hands on Sunda. They wanted him dead. Relatives, friends, and it was very difficult for the school to protect this boy from these militant things. They were, they were very militant, and they wanted him dead. And it was, it was many other people, family, friends, extended relatives, all of these people, to honour the family, to honour the father, they wanted to kill Sunda. And it was getting very difficult for the school to protect Sunda Singh. And soon it was almost going to be the end of the term. And at the end of the term they thought, oh, what are we going to do? Who can we, where can we send this boy? Where will he be protected? And so they, they thought, you know, we can't send him. We, there's no relatives we can send him to. He doesn't have any sort of friends that we can send him to. Where are we going to? Where on earth are we going to take him? And finally, they decided that they would send him to another missionary compound. And this missionary compound was for like a hospital for people with leprosy. Now, back in India in those days, leprosy, just like in the old days, was seen as like a, a defilement. And so people who had leprosy were sent way outside into remote areas and they, they lived out there until and they were cared for by missionaries generally. And so they decided that maybe they would send Sunda out there and out to one of these compounds and that they would he would volunteer there for his term break. And then by the end of that term break he would already be sixteen. And so he would then be able to make his own decisions and decide what he wanted to do with the rest of his life. Sunda was overjoyed at this. First, he was going to a remote place, away from the regimented life of the boarding school where there was no free time. He was going out, you know, it was right in the mountains of India, in the northern part of India, and he would be able to, um, he would be able to have his own time. He had a purpose in going out there, and so he was very happy. So out in, it was a place called Sabatu, he was sent. And he had a lot of time. There was a pine forest nearby. And he spent many hours in this pine forest reading his New Testament and asking the Lord what he wanted him to do for the rest of his life. And I guess he had learnt good principles from his mother about spending time. And so it was very natural for him to devote time in prayer and in meditation, not in the, 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 the way he'd, taught, he'd been taught when he was young, but now he meditated on the, the word of God and he prayed and he asked the Lord to lead him. And so for many hours he spent in that forest. And he also spent time going up into the mountains a little bit and looking out over India. Now he decided, he, by his 16th birthday, he decided on two things. One, he needed to be baptised. And he wanted to be baptised on his 16th birthday. And the second thing he decided on, and he knew it very clearly, the Lord had told him that he was to preach. And he was to preach to his people. And so those things were very, very clear to Sunda. And so on his 16th birthday, he decided to be baptised. And he spoke to the missionaries, they organised it. He was taken to the nearest town of Simla and he was baptised there. Now, baptism at this time, just like uh, in, for a Muslim or a Hindu, this was a real sign of your commitment. 
You know, to cut off your hair was to cut yourself off from the Sikh community, but to be baptized was to embrace the Christians. And it meant that you were now clearly, in the eyes of all Indian people, the fact that you were baptized was a real sign that this was your life. You were going to live for the Lord Jesus. It was very, very, very obvious and clear. And it was something that, you know, many people had been killed for being baptized because it was a real sign that you were embracing Jesus. And so he was baptized. And then he thought to himself, well, what what do I do? I, I know I need to preach. Now, all the missionaries around, the American missionaries, the English missionaries that he'd gotten to know, they all did one thing, and that was go to theological college. And in India, that's kind of what you did as well. You know, if you wanted, you know, if you, all the, the Indian Christians, they would, if they wanted to, like the reverend, they would go to theological college, they would then become a reverend or a minister, and that's, that's how you preached, and you then preached in a church, and, and so on. But Sunda didn't have peace with this, because he thought that this doesn't actually reach the Indian people. They see it as a foreign, just like he did. They, they saw it as a foreigner's thing. And this was the foreigner's way, the Western way. And he thought back to when he was a young boy, when he was seven years old, and he appeared before the old sadhu. And he remembered how that old sadhu said, one day, maybe you might become a sadhu. And he thought to himself, what about a Christian sadhu? And then as he read the New Testament again, he he realized that that's what Jesus did. He sent his disciples out with nothing. He sent them out and said that you would just go. You don't need bags. You don't need provisions. Go and preach from town to town, village to village. And if they accept you, stay. And if they don't, go. And he thought to himself, this is the life of a sadhu, someone who's renounced everything, who has no fixed address, someone who has no possessions. But instead of going from shrine to shrine or temple to temple, he would go from village to village to preach. And he thought that this is the way to reach all the Indian people, from the high caste Hindus to the lowest of all the caste, the untouchables. This is the way to reach everyone. And so he was very clear. He thought to himself, I will do it in a different way. I will become a sadhu. And one day when he was up on the mountains, he was looking across India. To the west, he could see the shimmering plains of all the cities with the dust kind of shimmering in the heat. But then he could see on the other side the plateaus of Afghanistan. But then towards the north, he could see the eternal snows of the Himalayas. And something in him said, go to your people first, and then one day I will send you to Tibet. And Tibet at that time was such a closed country that the idea that he would go to this this very closed country was almost unrealistic. But something in him said that one day he would go over there. And so on the 6th of October, 1905, with an orange-coloured robe, with the New Testament in his hand, a blanket over his shoulder, and with bare feet, he set off, said goodbye to all the missionary friends that he had grown to love, and he set off for the villages of India to preach to his people, to the Indian people. And that's the end of part one. <laughs>